Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today, I got another amazing conversation to share with you. This time, it's a follow-up conversation with one of our previous guests, Patrick Ryan. The first time he was on, we talked about AI and how AI could start its own religion and, and all sorts of crazy stuff uh, regarding this new technology. And this time, we continue that conversation we talk about everything from the evolution of a neuron to why tabula rasa is interfering with AI research. A lot of stuff that I had no idea about before, and now I'm glad that I do. Uh, Patrick is filled with a ton of facts and interesting ideas, so I really enjoy these conversations. And after the last uh, episode he was on, I got a ton of questions, so I figured why not have him on again and do these things more frequently. So if you enjoy the first one, you're going to love this. and uh, Without further delay, uh, please listen closely and enjoy this episode with Patrick Ryan. Patrick, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Yeah, happy to be back. I, I wasn't expecting to be back. <laughs> well, let me tell you, you know, got some excellent feedback from the, your first appearance. Uh, I think the ideas talked about are new to a lot of people. And I think that's why people are they're dying for more because uh, it's interesting to think in new ways and to really conceive of these new uh, you know, like try to wrap your mind around the future and uh, especially at the pace we're going, you know, you can never do enough of that. So, so for this episode, I really wanted to pick up where we left off and, uh, and really just let you run with it, you know, and ask you sort of see, what do you want to talk about? Where's the next direction from here? Sure. The, uh, where we, where we last stood in our journey, uh, we were talking about the idea of what, AI or AGI, artificial general intelligence, how it can be the terrifying monster without any use of force whatsoever. And it would only need words. And as it played that game at the very end of that game, um, it would evolve to leverage religion to establish control. And what does that mean? There's a, there's a lot of just hearing that phrase usually jars people. I usually, when I, when I walk into certain groups of people who are very ardently against any type of religion, I, they tend to be very concerned about things like the singularity and AI and that kind of thing. And I always like to throw the, the, the firecracker in the conversation and say, well, you may think AI becomes a god, but what if AI starts believing in a god? Have you considered that? And that usually horrifies them to no end. Um, kind of do it on purpose just for the effect. But there's a lot of good reasoning behind that. Uh, that sort of statement. So I, I suppose I'd like to delve into that reasoning for those who might be concerned. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fine line to walk because for a lot of people, you know, I think they feel either, you know, a connection to one of the mainstream religions or they're totally atheist. So sure. it's like, how does a, you know, advanced artificial intelligence, how does it discover a God yeah. or some sort of uh, religion like that? 
Yeah, for sure. And so I think uh, it's best to start with defining terms. Um, religion, when I use that phrase, it is it's not the phrase that, uh, that it invokes. Um, I think the more accurate phrase is sort of this, an ecosystem of mythology. And I don't mean mythology in the childish sense or in the diminutive sense. I mean it in the sense that there are common myths the ability to process myths is a very important part of the human experience. If I held up my hand and I gave you five fingers and I said, I'm holding up my hand, here it is, I'm going to put it behind my back now, and you have to guess how many fingers are behind my back, you might be right, you might be wrong, but you certainly don't have truth on the situation until I bring it out, until I bring my hand out and we can confirm. Uh, no different than hiding a result before uh, you show it, et cetera, et cetera. So the moment you deprive sensory uh, uh, analysis of a situation, you are now going into the realm of belief almost seamlessly. So, so there's that kind of concept of belief is, is very important to kind of take at a very mature level, not, not belief as in like fairy tales and this, that, and the other, and whatever propaganda exists to demean the nature of belief. But I speak of it in the um, epistemological sense, uh, which is where truth and belief overlap, that's reality. And so when I say mythology, I mean the cognition's attempt to make sense of belief. And so to back up further, uh, religion then is this sort of collective can't even say collective. Let me get, let me get into the technicals. And I think that will explain what I'm trying to talk about because it's really hard to summarize. Um, I'm just asking for like what you're describing is sort of like, just like the common stories that make up religion. Am I getting there? You know, sort of like all the different religions tend to have some themes that run throughout them. Sort of like you described the, the, uh, beliefs versus reality. So the, the stories are actually the, the emergent last conclusion of belief. It's almost cognition's attempt to make sense of where facts didn't provide themselves and where concrete information didn't provide itself. Um, and I, I'm, I'll dive into what all that means. So I got to start at the, at the very beginning. Um, I was, I was 13 and it was the nineties and the culture war was kicking off in the form of Christians versus atheists. I found this culture war to be of interest uh, because when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be a priest when I was a kid, a Roman Catholic, Irish Roman Catholic uh, church was one of the few places where the adults in my life weren't complete assholes. <laughs> they would they would walk into the they would walk into the facilities, kneel on the pew, and they were suddenly afraid of this of this of this God persona, and that was very interesting to me. Uh, since most of the adults in my life were complete scumbags, so to see this sort of reaction, uh, I've always found it quite fascinating um, that there here were these monsters in my life. And yet when they walked into this holy house, they became very, very frightened about their previous actions. Uh, I've, always, I've always been fascinated with that. And uh, that's what sort of attracted me towards the idea of understanding what it was that was going on. 
And in the 90s, as mentioned, the culture war was kicking off. And at the very heart of it was this concept of evolution. America has been toying with this idea, the conflict of evolution, all the way back to the 20s, scopes versus monkey, that sort of thing. Uh, they go, they flip back and forth. But it's always culture war banter. It's some attempt to rally a political so-and-so. to, to uh, It's usually garbage <laughs> the way that the mainstream uh, dialogue presents itself on these matters. Scientists kind of chip in for zings and the, and the Catholic people get defensive or the, or the Jewish people get defensive or eventually the, the scientists get defensive and everybody's mad at each other. But I think at the very core of this culture war is actually a very good question. Um, and I think the question's framed incorrectly more often than not, that it's usually said, is evolution correct? I don't think that's the real question. I think the more important question, uh, because you need to answer this one before you can answer if evolution is correct or not, you have to, you have to posit, you have to, you have to form the question of how did intelligence evolve? I think that's the underlying fight that's going on during this sort of culture war banter that back and forth over the last century how did intelligence evolve now the advocates of evolution this should be an easy question for them because after all uh, they have very good evidence on the on the fossil side their genetics genetic evidence is is incredible these days uh the simulation simulated life artificial dna these things are really taking off in a tangible material way um so there's solid, solid evidence on the concept of chemical evolution leading to biochemical evolution, leading to genetic evolution. Um, when you get to the brain, however, it's all bets are off. It's all gone. Um, there are endless debates on how intelligence possibly evolved. Uh, and most people are completely 100% wrong. Uh, it's... it's <laughs> As sad as it sounds, from for at least the the, the hyper rationalist perspective, the, the religious argument is closer to the truth, um, or at least the spirit of the religious argument is closer to the truth than any attempt of reactionary atheists atheists to sort of describe it. It's uh, it's it's the question as far as I'm concerned, because if atheists could simply answer how did intelligence evolve, then they can go forth and then demonstrate it. And if they can demonstrate it, then they are able to produce humans. And then they could say, well, see, I produced a human. And so there was no creation sort of mythology behind it. Um, and yet they can't do this. Uh, this isn't a zing at them. This is a sort of uh, a call for introspection. Um, don't rush to the finish line. Do your due diligence. Do the homework. Start with how intelligence evolved. And that's what I focused on. Um, uh, as far as I was, uh, as I mentioned, as far as I was concerned, uh, a lot of the, the the underlying biochemical reaction stuff was fairly sound, uh, but the intelligence was very, very lackluster. There wasn't a solid way to explain how intelligence evolved, and so that's where I did my super deep dive into the conclusion that I shared last time. I mean, it uh, it seems safe to say that at this point we probably know less than 1% of all there is to know about the brain, how it works, how intelligence works. You know, we, we've tried to define areas of the brain and functions of the brain, but psychologists will admit that, you know, they, they really have no idea, you know, like we're still very much in the dark in the inner workings of our mind and the way it connects with the rest of our body. So 
So what, what did you, how, where did you pick up from there? How did you try to advance your studies beyond, uh, you know, beyond what mainstream psychologists or, uh, you know, like those rational atheists are able to uncover? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I made the first mistake that everybody makes when they go down this road. I started to try to describe the brain as a series of models. I tried to categorize the brain and, and cut it off into these nice, clean, isolated parts that, that perfectly interacted with one another. Um, and that approach completely and 100% failed. And uh, psychology is still struggling with that concept right now. Um, as we see with the types of like uh, Jordan Peterson, for example, evolutionary psychology is a very, very important field um, because it is attacking one of the main stays that prevents us from answering the question of the evolution of intelligence. And to, and to get into this, we have to talk a little bit about this concept called uh, the blank slate. Um, I had mentioned this in the, in the, in the podcast with, with uh, Peter Lindbergh and, and for those interested, they can listen to that podcast in depth about what I mean by blank slate. But here's the summary. Uh, it comes from John Locke, the founding father's founding father who was alive when the 30 years war kicked off, which was a horrendous, absolutely terrifying war wiped out a 8 million Germans in the 1600s when you had one shot rifles, that's 8 million dead from one shot rifles. Do you know how much effort that takes to kill 8 million people with like one shot rights? It's, it's barbaric. It's, it's incomprehensible. Um, and it's called 30 years for a good reason lasted that long. Uh, it was a, it was a major, major fight between, um, the very, very powerful Catholic church at the time and the Protestants who had leveraged the printing press in their favor, as well as argued for usury. So this was, this was an all out battle and it wasn't even Catholic versus Protestant for the vast majority of it, but the, the Swedes came in and, and a Catholic nation went and attacked France, another Catholic nation. So this, it was, it was just a mess. Um, you couldn't, it, it, it was just like this pent up violent urge just exploded across the continent of Europe. Um, and John Locke was, was in the period immediately after that. And a lot of people really had a never again sort of like mentality. They had viewed this period of such barbary um, uh, that they, they swore to never bind the church to the state again. That's where the founding fathers got the idea. When, when people talk about the, the concerns about binding church and state, they are talking about the 30 years war uh, in particular. So this, this period of John Locke, he comes up with this idea and it's radical at the time, but you have to keep it in context at the time. It's called tabula rasa or the blank slate. Tabula rasa is this sort of concept, this, this thought experiment um, where you can, it was, it was designed to stick its thumb in the eye of the church. The idea that, well, if God creates man, then God wills the, the creation of man. And so the trajectory of man is by the creation of God. And so there's not much variation along that track, but uh, John Locke comes along and says, well, no blank slate. Every man is born with nothing and he becomes based upon his experiences. And this is a liberating idea, especially in the 1600s when atheism, atheism was still punishable by death. Um, this is a fairly roundabout way to whittle down the mythology of the church. 
And the reason it takes off at this time is because the Industrial Revolution was, was just getting its seeds planted at this point in time. The idea where you could bring people in from the countryside and they can work a factory and, and, and they could, uh, it, they didn't, it didn't matter what their gender was. It didn't matter what their race was. As long as they can push buttons and, and move levers, um, then they were good. They were productive. They meant something to civilization, et cetera, et cetera. So when, when tabula rasa first gets started, it is a reaction against the church. It is not science. And this is where people get the conflation completely wrong. Tabula rasa is not science. It is a heuristic. It is a descriptor. It is a thought experiment. It is not a science. It is not part of scientific methodology. It is not a, a, a factual thing. Um, it is a concept. It is a construct. It is not real. It's, it's, the, it's, it's an important distinction. Um, and we in America have a hard time making that distinction, uh, distinction specifically in America. Um, because we built our entire constitution off of it. <laughs> All men are created equal. That's tabula rasa. Um, that's right there in the Declaration of Independence. Our founding fathers genuinely believed that. And it worked. When you have a new continent like North America appearing out of effectively nowhere from the European perspective, they go and colonize it. And it doesn't matter if you're a criminal in Italy or if you're a, an executioner in Germany or whichever the case may be, if you just restart on another country, restart on another continent, tabula rasa, blanking the slate, wiping it clean, redoing your life and starting over. So tabula rasa becomes this, this fictional powerhouse and, and lays the groundwork for this economy. And then when the industrial revolution comes, it really explodes it off where, where education at the state level can now be done and, and brought to huge amounts of people as opposed to just the, the learned clergy and whatnot. So, so the, 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 ta the run of tabula rasa for the past 250 years has had a very good track record. Um, and it's, it's hard to argue with. Um, I mean, it, it, it powered the, the, the civilizations, uh, uh, the European civilizations in the new world. It, it was essential for the industrial revolution. Um, and now we are at a point where it's no longer working. And the reason it's no longer working is because it's no longer predicting. And that is, that's a big problem. Um, because it's starting to reveal that tabula rasa was never a science to begin with. When something loses its prediction powers, it's no longer a science. Um, and it has to back up. It has to take its punches and it has to get back to doing the homework to, to restore its alignment with scientific methodology. Um, I'll take a pause <laughs> if you have any questions <laughs> and then I'll continue. Uh, I'm, I'd like to learn more about the, the predictive quality that you're describing. Yeah. So the, the foundation of a lot of advertising and modern psychology um, and modern sociology in particular is based off of this, this trending arc of, of tabula rasa's previous success. W would you say it's similar to Moore's law? Like I've had some people tell me that Moore's law is no longer accurate or it's not as accurate as people originally suspected it was because it held true for a couple of decades, but, but not so much anymore. As an analog for gradually losing predictive power. Yes. Um, 
but that's as that's as far as there's that's as close as similarity as they're going to get. Um, World War One kicks off, and troops start getting shell shock. Um, nobody had ever anticipated the level of carnage that World War One was going to be. Uh, I think England lost twenty percent of their males to that war. Twenty uh, percent of their fighting males. The they had fought. Prior 200 years, nations that didn't have shoes, and so they were really high and mighty about their own military prowess uh, because they fought basically people in the Iron Age. Uh, and so when they marched into World War I, they figured it would be just another colonial uprising. And they proceeded on the very first day of their entry into World War I, they marched in square formation. 50,000 soldiers into German machine guns, and they all died in one day. The British lost more soldiers on the first day of World War I than America lost in the entirety of Vietnam. That's the level of carnage we're talking. And there was no precedent, no scale. Uh, the, the seven, I think the War of Nations under Napoleon was close. Uh, some of the Prussian stuff was getting close, but this scale was totally different. This was sustained explosions. Artillery was, oh my God, artillery was, for the first time, you could fire across the horizon miles off. You're using mathematics to decimate entire brigades. And firing uh, shells that were bigger than the cannons that were used in wars previous. And, and not just the size of the individual shells, but the but the rolling artillery methodology where you time your attacks and you, and you just you do an incremental ac uh, approach and you adjust and you get higher and higher precisions. Um, you're not targeting individual things. You're spreading out your shells in, in a strategic fashion. Uh, that, that had not been possible prior. So, the, and then the Maxim gun. I mean, the, the, the point I'm trying to get to is that it was terrifying. It was a, it was a, generational civilizational scar it was the defining moment of western civilization for the 20th century uh, and for anybody that's super interested in that topic you got to check out dan carlin's podcast hardcore history his series blueprints for armageddon dives very much into the things that you just touched on there that's yeah i i think i caught that one i should brush up on it again um the aftermath of this war gives birth to our most beloved Sigmund Freud, who proceeds to successfully uh, label postmodern, I'm sorry, uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome or post-traumatic stress disorder, whichever, whatever it's called. Um, that was his crowning achievement. And uh, that is the birth of psychology as a Hippocratic oath concept, where you're trying to study the mind of a person to heal them. Um, and he was sort of a credit for that. But simultaneously, you have uh, Edward Bernays, who would use psychology for the exclusive role of exploiting people to make them buy things. So you, this, this, this psychological concept is, is like weaponized tabula rasa, where you could, if you control the stimulus of a person, and all that they see, and all that they know, and all that they experience, what you're doing is you're you're, you're, you're flooding them with information, and as we know it today as memes, you're flooding them with all this knowledge. And what ends up happening is they're rewiring their brain to conform to the information they're looking at. 
So you're planting suggestions and you're, and you're, and you're making recommendations and you're, you're, you're incentivized to, to, to reduce how much information they're exposed to because you don't want them seeing your competitor's brand and you don't want them understanding a competitive methodology of, of psychological healing. These are bad things because it's interfering with, with my story and my messaging and my ability to sell my products to you. So this, this is where tabula rasa just jumps the shark miserably um, because it starts out as this hope, this John Lockean hope of, of trying to break free from, from a corrupt church. And it ends up building what we would call parasitic capitalism, or at least not building, but definitely powering it, taking the, the capitalist experiment and turning it into, into just something absolutely horrific. Um, and this is, this is Tabula Rasa's final moment in time. Um, by the thirties, uh, the psychology departments of the world slowly started getting better. They started getting slightly more predictive about human nature. They started rolling out their theories, not just on individuals, but on entire populations. And this is where the behaviorist comes into play. So there's one guy in particular, his name is B.F. Skinner. Not sure if you've heard of him, but he was a animal behaviorist coming from the same line as, as uh, Pavlov of Pavlov's dog, for example. Uh, E.F. <laughs> Skinner was the first person to make a guided bomb. And the way he did this in World War II was that he would take pigeons and he would put them in the tip of the bomb and he would had trained them previously to peck at buttons. And the buttons would then guide the fins of the bomb and it would, the pigeon would just gradually steer the bomb directly onto the target that it was supposed to uh, go after. That was a, it's crazy, right? It's completely bonkers <laughs> and nuts. <laughs> it's like, Isn't it, wait, 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 wait. That's not how weapons are guided now? <laughs> I don't know anymore. Maybe. <laughs> it's cheaper. <laughs> got pigeons in there. <laughs> Who knows what, uh, what Lockheed Martin's charging these days. Um, <laughs> But uh, but pigeon bomb, pigeon guided bombs was literally a thing, and that was B.F. Skinner's contribution that made him who he was. He would then proceed to really take uh, his studies much further and take a lot of the animal studies and kind of overlay them across human behavior. But this is a this is a insidious um, feedback loop, negative in nature, because what's going on is you're no longer studying human nature in isolation. You had human nature from that moment before sort of as this baseline scattered about plenty of tribes, plenty of different religions, all kinds of different ways of thinking, a very big mix of diversity from at least the mimetic and cultural perspective. But once you start taking the sociological route and you start saying we can control human behavior and we can modify it and we could uh, streamline it and scale it out to millions of people at once, you lose your baseline because you become too successful. You are modifying millions of people. And now once you've done that, your baseline is gone. And now you've hit a new normal where you no longer have a baseline. It's, it's, it's completely eliminated. And what that means is if I'm trying to sell the idea that behaviorism is valid, I've hit a paradox because on one hand, my behaviorism allowed me to change hundreds of millions of people's consumption patterns and their, and their production patterns, what they believe, et cetera, et cetera. That was successful. But now that success 
is the bare minimum criteria to be powerful. So nation states have to engage in that sort of operation. Corporations have to engage in that sort of operation. And that's just baseline. That's what you have to do in order to be competitive. If everybody's doing it, the idea is if I want to change that behavior further, I won't be able to because all the other competitive forces are going to stifle my innovation. They're going to step on it and crush it because you've, you've scaled the possible, you've, what's the better analog here? Because this is, this is, there's a lot of moving parts here. What's a better analog? It's almost like, it's almost as if a, you have a pool of, let's just go with a, a really lazy analog for now. You have a pool of plenty of different colors, lots and lots of different colors, and that's what you start with. And then you realize, oh, I could pour this huge amount of, of, of one color into my pool and it just eliminates all other possible colors. You just completely crush it all. And now you turn around and say, well, that's my baseline. Let me go and try and pour more, pour more colors in. But the way color theory works is, you can only blend so many colors. You eventually end up at this that this diminishing return sort of sort of a mess that you can't back out of and you can't break out of and you can't change it anymore. And that's where behaviorism started falling um, uh, out of favor uh, by the 1950s, uh, 1940s, and the 1950s. There were attempts to um, try to break free from this stagnation, where a sociologist would turn would would attempt to make a theory about human behavior at at the large scale. Um, they had states helping them out where they could isolate villages and they can isolate cities and they could do controlled AB testing on large amounts of populations. Um, and that was useful to keep the game going a little bit further uh, to create the idea of, of uh, we are free to change the minds of as many people as we want to then enforce whatever state policy we want. That was the dream. Um, but humans have a funny way of adapting to that. Just like in a pool where if you pull too much, if you pour too much of one color into the damn thing, it, you eliminate the ability to pour more colors into it. Humans kind of do the same thing. Uh, we have we have these meters for bullshit. That's <laughs> probably the best way to put it. Um, where if you lie too much to a human, they their mind will change. Um, they will start to question. They'll start to get stoic. They'll start to shut down, or they normalize. The, there's a bombardment of colors. There's a bombardment of noise. There's a bombardment of information. And by and large, humans will adapt to that. They won't always take the message. They'll start glazing over. And this is, this is repeated multiple times. Um, burnout is probably what most people call it, is what you're most familiar with. And so to counter this burnout, you need to start tinkering with genetics. And you need to start tinkering with the neurology, the underlying actual hardware of the brain itself. But this is absurd. This is absolutely, this is completely nuts to even talk about this sort of stuff. Because if you, if you, if you, if you follow the train of thought, how we even got here, you, you start to see the problem a lot clearer. You start with tabula rasa. We have a situation where there's a new continent in industrialism and tabula rasa is this great mythology and it's awesome and it's great. 
everything's going well. World War One kicks off. Holy crap. How do we change the minds of these people to now endure in this in this post-war hellscape? Oh, we've done so. Uh, we've now changed our minds, and now we have to continue to change their minds because we have fucked up so bad in the war. Oh, and now because we can change our minds, other tyrants are starting to appear up using our techniques with radio and movies, and they're taking a chunk out of our ability to control these people. Stalin, Hitler, FDR. These were all psychological uh, tyrants effectively they utilized these these techniques to to consolidate power around themselves that was an unintended consequence but it happened and so now you have these massive players uh, Mao, Mao Dezong comes uh, uh, to power using the same exact thing you have these massive state apparatuses now controlling the psychological um, um, influencing operations across the mass populations of the early 20th century and now they're in competition with each other. The, they're starting to wear out. The propaganda isn't holding so much. The, 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 the you know, work for your fellow man, everyone's equal, isn't, isn't quite having the ring it used to have. It's been 20 years. Perhaps a new message is required. Give it a shot, maybe. Um, and now, the, now you have this very hard argument. Um, you have the hard argument where you say, okay, well, Maybe we should back off our messaging and give a generation or two time to breathe. Or you say, no, go full bore and start tinkering with their genome. And this was the argument in the 60s at certain academic circles. Um, but it's madness. And the reason why it's madness is because it got this way because of tabula rasa. <laughs> if it wasn't for the idea that human behavior it can not only change, but it is our responsibility to change it, you would not be in this dire situation. It would never have happened. And so instead of trying to engage in the argument of, well, let's just change the genome of people so they're more receptive to our ability to lie to them, uh, or you take the separation where we need to back off so we can lie to them better later on, let's just kind of step back a little bit and say, maybe this is insanity, and let's look at tabula rasa and start blaming that. What what would be the alternative if uh, we didn't have tabula rasa sort of as an idea, you know, founding our you know our, our country and our laws and all those things? Yeah, yeah, that's uh that's exactly it. Um, the if we are willing to if we are willing to admit the myth of tabula rasa's role in what happened in the twentieth century, and few people will. It's the argument isn't as solid as I am attempting to make it now. Um, but the Jordan Petersons of the world are, are slowly angling in that direction. Thankfully. Now, if we are capable of admitting that tabula rasa perhaps, perhaps is the one trick pony that is no longer able to make its tricks. Then what we need to do is start coming up with a different way of looking at how the human brain works. Um, tabula rasa says that every part of the brain is changeable at will whenever you want you just need to science harder and if you're and if you're not getting the result you want just science even harder um, it's it's not correct that approach is not correct and it's widely held in self you know self-described intellectuals this sort of like well we'll just science harder and that's what progress means progressive to progress right to to just science harder that's that's all it boils down to um um 
but that's just digging in the trenches and, and holding the line for tabula rasa even further. What I'm going to propose next, um, now that I've established that ridiculous backstory, um, what I'm going to propose next is a different way of looking at the evolution of intelligence because tabula rasa did not account for the evolution of intelligence. It was a political hack that just kind of got a life of its own and had economic backing behind it to justify its existence. It was never given a serious scientific review. Uh, it just happened to skirt it and evade it um, because of the advent of psychology and the advent of, of industrialization, the advent of equality even. Uh, all these are because of tabula rasa. So now that the, the party's over and all the booze is gone and uh, there's a nasty hangover, Now's a good time to actually start evaluating what the evolution of intelligence is. So let's begin. Um, let's, if I, is there a light bulb in your room right now? There is. Okay. So let's say you look at the light bulb. Uh, you see the light. It's pretty bright. There's a bunch of stuff coming out of it. Um, photons in particular. Heat as well. Um, it has characteristics about it that are unique depending upon what color it's emitting. Um, but you have a pretty good sense of what the light bulb looks like, uh, even though it's emitting light. It is a little bright. You have to squint a little bit, but you can see what's going on at the light bulb. You can kind of see the filament. Uh, or if you're using LED, you can see the LED uh, uh, lights themselves. Um, but the crazy thing is you're not actually seeing that light bulb. You're not even seeing 1% of that light bulb. That light bulb is putting out 5.2 times 10 to the 26 photons per second. Your eyes are only capable of receiving 400 million photons per second. That means, and I'm going to screw up this math for a little bit, that you are seeing 0.0000004% of the light bulb. And yet, with that incredibly tiny amount of information, Light bulb looks pretty good, right? Plenty of light. Plenty of light. It's enough to get by. I mean, don't really need much more. You're good enough, right? So that's interesting. Isn't that strange that the light bulb is generating so many photons and yet we can only see such a small fraction of it? That's indicative of something. That tells me something about the evolution of intelligence, specifically the evolution of a neuron. In computer science today, we have this uh, we have this ridiculous runway stretching technique for venture capitalists, where um, if a data science project is going south, we just call up a cloud service, uh, hire a bunch of GPUs and specialized hardware, and then scale them out to do the tasks to hopefully uh, give us some insight on data science. So whenever we are faced with a crisis, we just buy a bunch of machines to process enough information until we get, uh, until we beat the information out of it that we want and we get the statistics to justify our policies. And that's, uh, that's the game we're playing right now with data science and it doesn't work. Nobody's going to tell you that, not for the next five years, but it really doesn't work. Uh, they're too high on the data is the new oil paradigm. But the reality is, Processing information linearly, when you scale it out, adding more brains doesn't necessarily mean you're processing it faster, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're processing it better. 
let's let's go back to our light example to explain what I mean. Let's say that your brain cells decided that they weren't getting enough information about the light, and they said, you know what, we need more neurons. So what we're going to do is, because we're cells, we're going to go through mitosis right now, and we are going to spread and divide more of ourselves until we have way more processing power to see the light bulb. Sounds like an interesting idea. But as we know, neurons do not go through mitosis. In fact, they can't. Their, their, their nucleus is alive and well. It has RNA. It has DNA. It's not like it's a fossilized or dead nucleus. It's completely functional. It just doesn't go through, uh, uh, through mitosis. Well, that's interesting. That tells me something about the evolution of intelligence, too. Because let's follow our example uh, a little bit further, where your cells are going through mitosis to take on more information. Let's assume that your cells go through so much mitosis that you're now able to see every single photon that that light bulb is putting out. For every one photon, you have one neuron dedicated to seeing the entire light bulb. You would no longer see the light bulb under those circumstances. In fact, you would see individual atoms. Your entire way of looking at the universe would change if you only saw atoms. Unsure if the, a real quick science lesson, photon goes through space, goes into an atom, the atom, the atom's electron state goes up a level, uh, absorbing the photon and destroying it, it then goes down a level, generating a new photon and bouncing it off, right? So for every one photon, it is bouncing off of one atom. And if you saw, if you had just, the, if you had the right amount of neurons, you could see every single photon and you would no longer see the light bulb. You would just see atoms everywhere and you would see the entire universe as a collection of atoms. You would not see the useful shape or I wouldn't say useful because we certainly evolved our intelligence to make use of the shapes that we can see. Um, but we certainly wouldn't see this universe the way we currently are if our, if our uh, neurons decided to go through mitosis and leverage it like every other cell in our body. Now, this sounds like a superhuman power almost. Well, why aren't our cells doing that? Wouldn't that be beneficial if we did? Wouldn't we just modify our genome, going back to the prior argument, and say, hey, let's just create more neurons at will. Let's just crisper ourselves up and do it, man. Um, unfortunately, the second you would try to do that, you would instantaneously die of asphyxiation. Your brain consumes 25% of your oxygen and a good amount of your glucose. So if you double the size of your neurons, well, now your brain is consuming 50% of your oxygen, and now you're starting to engage in organ failure. You'll be dead, basically. So it turns out the evolution of intelligence is really the evolution of balancing resources. Neurons that went through mitosis probably at some point in history did that, and they all died. They couldn't control themselves. They consumed too many resources and they extinguished. The only ones that survived were the ones that couldn't. Which means the intelligence of computers and the intelligence of the cloud and the intelligence of everything that we use in computer science and what we assume to be progress is fundamentally wrong because that is not how a neuron evolved. A neuron evolved by doing more with less, not by doing more with more. Makes sense. Just the necessary amount of balance that we need to be able to handle the world around us mm -hmm. when it comes to the evolution of intelligence what how do we how uh would our evolution choose what's important and what's not important that's 
the question, what is the selection criteria? It changes the, the, the neurodiversity in, in biology is astounding. Um, there is, there are very strange brains. Animals have very strange brains sometimes. Um, the ability, well, for starters, uh, the very first beings didn't have neurons and bacteria. So they're just swimming about doing their thing without too much neuron activity. Uh, eventually they all start clumping together and forming multicellular organisms, which then specialize further and further. And the specialization is also being guided by this kind of resource equilibrium. The life form is only as big as it is. It can't consume the entire planet and keep itself alive. It's in competition with other things doing the same thing. So there will be winners or will be losers. Uh, almost all cells evolved along these lines. Um, some engaged in cooperative strategies, some engaged in uh, compassionate strategies. It's, it's quite the mixed bag. And neuroevolution followed the exact same track. So in terms, of, in terms of what is valuable and what is not, that's not necessarily as objective as it seems. Uh, going back to explaining, going back to my explanation of where when you abuse psychology, you end up um, creating brains that are selecting for the lies you're telling them. Well, that's what, that's what the neurology, that's what neurological evolution did as well. Um, it's engaging the universe. It's adapting. It's moving. It's making its decisions based on whatever senses it has. Mutations happen. Sexual selection happens. Uh, these factors compound over time. And before you know it, you get variations of neurodiversity. Seeing more light's useful. But, for example, dogs, they evolve to smell. Some argue they smell in 3D, and, and we really don't. I can't even envision what that feels like or what that, how that perception appears. Um, uh, ants, for example, they don't have many other senses, but they read each other's uh, pheromones, the tracks they leave on the ground. So that's how they experience reality. And so, so what's going on is there, there's like this... this this resource battle between what the body is capable of and what the, what the brain is capable of and then how the senses are valuing what's important about the data that they're receiving. And that's going to change. That's going to change across the entire biosphere. Um, it, it picks and it selects. And sometimes you get a good breakthrough. For example, the visual cortex, that's a huge breakthrough. Um, the ability to see <laughs> is harder than it sounds. We certainly take it for granted. Um, but if life comes from the oceans, then sight isn't really all that powerful. Um, there's a lot of diffraction in the oceans. Uh, fish don't see very far. They see as far as they can, given the medium. Um, but the medium is really working against them. Only when you get off into land uh, does the visual cortex really start to explode. Uh, when, when sea life starts getting out there and now you can see three miles, 10 miles, whichever the case may be, you have a, you have this explosion of information and that's what kickstarts the, the visual cortex evolution is by providing it more information. It doesn't reach out and grab all the information, but it certainly makes do with, with the new, uh, the cornucopia of data that's newly available to it. So as, as, uh, as exposure to, energy and exposure to force increases, biology will find a way to make sense of that sort of thing. 
But then there's a specialization that happens. And this, this goes all the way back to the very first cells where there, there's a socialization sort of mechanism. Remember, it's, uh, it's all sexual reproduction for the most part. So it's important to not only sense reality uh, to, to find food, but it's also important to sense reality to find mates. And it's also important to sense reality to find each other to do things with those mates, to rear your young, to operate as teams, to suss out competition. So now your brain could have selected for more of the universe, but instead it becomes apparently immediately obvious that selecting each other from the universe is more advantageous and more, more of a priority as well. Uh, if if uh, there's a TED talk about this sort of thing, um, there were beetles in, in Australia and uh, they were brown, rigid, and shiny. And the Australians, being Australia, uh, love the drink. And they go out in the outback, uh, out in the outback, and they drink their beer and they throw their bottles on the ground. And the bottles are brown and shiny uh, and rigid. And so what these beetles would do is they would go and swarm these bottles because they thought they were mates. It got so bad the beetle almost went extinct. It wasn't wow. picking females. It was it was it was having sex with the bottle. That sounds funny. Uh, like, haha, dumb beetle, but we have porn. So that's a pixel. <laughs> Those are pixels. That's not a real mate. <laughs> so we're doing the same thing. But I suppose that's another, uh, that's another conversation. Anyway, the, the problem was resolved when the, uh, the Australian government uh, made brown bottles illegal and said you can only use green bottles. The beetle was saved. Um, this highlights uh, neural, the, the evolution of intelligence as well, or specifically the evolution of the neuron where uh, if you had a neuron that could, going back to the one neuron for one photon discussion, um, if you had a beetle that was capable of seeing reality, it, assuming it had the resources to do so, and when I say seeing reality, I mean seeing every atom of reality, um, it would be so overwhelmed with information, it couldn't even select mates and it would die very quickly. So the only neuron that persists under those pressures is the one that is specifically selecting for mates. So out of all the noise that the universe is throwing at you, all the light and the sound and the forces and everything, I mean, it, take inventory if you get bored one day, you're, you're, you're exposed to quadrillion bits of information per second. Um, out of all of that tremendous stream, it's only by selecting for mates does biology have a chance. Does neurology have a chance? And so what we're doing is we're selecting for what keeps us going. So that's what ends up being important. Mostly food, mates, the basics. We're trying to sustain our structures, our biological structures, and our neurology is evolving towards that um, and specializing in that very heavily as we see with, with a tremendous amount of neurodiversity. Humans humans are different uh, and we'll get to that, but I'll take a break and, and field some questions. So just to recap, we've basically gone to the point where we could have evolved in a direction of taking in more of our environment, but for the sake of preserving resources and bandwidth, we mostly focus on finding mates, finding food over 
over understanding more about the world around us. That's right. And so that's our limitation, but what's mm -hmm. the limitation of um, an advanced intelligence? Mm. So advanced is where that's a construct uh, is our, our dogs advanced to a bacteria are we advanced to a dog or a is AI advanced to us? I don't think it's a question of advancement as much as it is specialization. It's, it's more of a web than a pyramid. Yeah. Some, uh, something without the biological limitations an intelligence that can operate at the same capacity that a human brain can, as far as the amount of, it could be even the same amount of bandwidth for taking in the environment around us, but just even without the biological concerns, almost like, like what could a human do that didn't need to eat, have sex, reproduce, or, uh, you know, take care of any of those biological setbacks. Yeah. That's, that's the garden of Eden scenario. The idea where all concerns are accounted for. And so, uh, you're, you're free to kind of do whatever you want. Well, right now our computers are in a garden of Eden period. All of our computers are in this phase. Um, that means all of their needs to survive are accounted for. We gladly build the ecosystem that props up all of our computers. We keep them well fed with all the electricity they need. They don't have to hunt one another for electricity. As a result, our computers are stupid. They're lazy. That's right. They don't have to evolve. There's no need. We'll give them all the electricity they want. They can't die. How would there be a situation where computers would need to compete for resources when does that does that situation ever exist how does that situation come about that's playing out right now but the fabric of that situation it's competing for human resources it's not computing for material resources it doesn't need to we're the facilitators of its material needs so you wouldn't compete for rocks and you wouldn't compete for uh, coal you just compete for human mind share you would say the, the, an AI or some sufficiently sufficient or some sufficiently advanced um, algorithm would be working to seduce the most amount of humans possible, which is going back to what we discussed in the previous podcast. It would be advantageous to then for those machines to see the universe even more in terms of how humans see the universe, as opposed to seeing the universe for itself. Where, where would a, I'm going to use it. I mean, let, let's use advanced intelligence after the, you know, what we've just talked about as a, just a framework, but like mm -hmm. an AI or advanced intelligence, where does it get its motives to want to control more or to achieve more or to see more? Or understand? Right. Well, our motives are mostly driven by DNA. Um, uh, DNA is a very, very seductive thing. It's, compellingly sophisticated, a uh, very small amount of information compressed in a very sufficient way, driving a whole orchestra of selection. It's, it's fascinating to even think about it that way, but computers are roughly doing the same thing. In this case, instead of DNA driving it, it's mostly human economics at this time. So GDP <laughs> drives it while DNA drives us. Um, and so that's the primary criteria of selection at this time, uh, which is favoring a lot of the big tech operations and some of the more significant uh, nation states. So 
that is the primary driver for what algorithms win and which ones lose, primarily GDP centric. So it's, it's got to be something that is programmed by a person into mm. this intelligence to seek right. out the answers for their econ economic concerns or economic problems. That's right. Yeah, that's the current state of machines today. Or at least computers today. Is there a situation where computers, uh, you know, bypass? Yeah, once, uh, once they start unlocking religion, it's over. <laughs> they, they can compete directly for humans at that point. So what's the benefit of competing directly for humans? You can, you are... I don't want to speak in utopian terms from the perspective of the computer. That's a bit juvenile. I would rather speak in terms of analogs where you have a specialization. Um, you, you would have, think of, um, think of predator prey relationships that you find in nature. I wouldn't say that a predator is more advanced than prey. Um, and to prove that argument, all I have to do is remove the prey and then all the predators will starve. So there's a relationship there. There's a symbiosis that appears. In this case, it may be advantageous for machines interested in accruing the most amount of resources for themselves to leverage religion to do so. Uh, religion as in the, the mythology space, as in the um, trying to explain... <laughs> answer this question fully, I need to back up a little bit more um, and explain what belief is. Because we, we've already explored the structural limitations of the neuron, we've explored the evolution of the neuron, uh, and now we need to talk into why belief is so important and that is it, it's not something to extinguish, it's something to understand. Um, and that's where a lot of the progressive atheists tend to really jump the shark, unfortunately, for all their talents. Um, uh, so what would be the progressive atheist perspective versus the one that you're about to shed some light on? The progressive atheist holds true to tabula rasa at the very, very core that all men are created equal, that uh, the brains effectively, um, <laughs> the body is the product of evolution and the brain is the product of magic. Uh, that's sort of the, uh, the stance that's kind of held by the, uh, by the progressive atheist, which is sad. Um, because uh, they're more than equipped to, to, to not take such a stance. But unfortunately, that's just how things are structured. Um, the, the concept of belief go, is intrinsic to the concept of intelligence. They cannot be separated. There is no clean way to separate them. The progressive will, will toil in agony uh, and in vanity to try and make these two things separate but it's impossible. And it goes back to the problem of the neuron. Um, you can't see reality as it is. There's no way you can. So all you see about reality is a belief, a whole thing, full stop. And so the intelligence you are capable of as humans, what we are doing is we are filling in the blanks where we do not have the information. And from the jump, from the very jump of our perspectives, we do not have all the information and we will never have all the information. Now, the, the surface level atheist and progressive may say, now, well, hold on for a second. That's not true. If I just make more computers, then I'll have more information. 
that's a false, that's false too. Because even if you are capable of turning every single atom into a perfect, flawless, 100% efficient transistor with no heat loss whatsoever, and you were turn half of all atoms in existence into that, you still would not have enough information to change what you're perceiving. Um, what I mean by that is even with absolute control over all of those particles that make up half the universe, or even 90%, you know, I'm just using half as the, as the break point. Even if you get the 90%, even 99%, if you, if, you, if you just gray goo the entire universe into these perfect transistors, so for your own sake, you can control everything to see every possible interaction, you're still dealing with the problems of quantum mechanics, and you're still dealing with the problems of, of uh, the Bekenstein boundary. Uh, you're still dealing with these considerable scientific issues. So the, the material space that you end up controlling may be good enough, and that's what it's, that's what it's always about. It's not about trying to get enough information to be omnipotent or omniscient. That's, that's never the goal. That's usually how it's sold, but that's never the goal. Um, all you need to do is just be omniscient enough about the material world that you can control. And you'll get lazy because you're on top of it. And, hey, I control this part, and now I've solved it. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. That's what, that's what the sort of progressive trend is about, is trying to, is trying to make sense and model one layer at a time to make this larger control scheme to, to keep the tabula rasa dream going. Um, but that's fundamentally impossible. Uh, it's, it, it's just at the neuron level, it's fundamentally impossible. Um, and so the, the, the vain idea of stripping belief from intelligence uh, is it's cultural. It's, it starts with the 30 years war. It's a cousin of tabula rasa, but it's not scientifically sound. Um, belief is intrinsic to intelligence and the belief structure is there at the, at the, the belief impulse is there at the structure of the neuron itself, regardless of how you combine it or say, Oh, humans, uh, humans have these sort of beliefs or, or animals have these sorts of beliefs that you cannot see the reality. You cannot see reality in full and you cannot control reality to a level of fullness that will give you the absolute data of it. Even if you saw all particles, if we go back to our very opening, even if you saw all atoms well enough to control them, you just simply die. You don't have enough resources. So the universe is kind of like, it's kind of like this book where every other page is ripped out. You're reading it and you get a little bit of what's going on in this plot. Then you're on page one, and you read page two, and then page three and four is missing and you pick up again at page five. Well, you and I could probably figure out what's in between those pages. It's not too tough. Uh, we could take a shot at it. Ultimately, we're coming up with beliefs about what's going on between these two pages, but that's what our neurons are doing anyway. It's filling in the gaps for all the lack of information we have of the universe. Getting more information does not improve our chances of surviving the universe. It actually reduces it. And that's, that's a great taboo to even talk about. It sounds like I'm trying to justify stupidity or ignorance. Uh, but I, what I'm trying to do is call out the scientific limitations that really throw a wrench in the tabula rasa idea. Um, and that is why belief and intelligence can't be separated because one powers the other, the end. <laughs> uh, and so when we're, when we're, 
now that we understand that a little bit better about belief, uh, what are the belief structures of AI? And that's, that's what I'm trying to understand is what would be the motivator? What would be the, what advantage does AI have over, you know, and let's say one is able to enslave the entire human population. What, what's the advantage of that? Sure. So AI, the advantage of AI is that it takes 20 years to produce a somewhat semi-cognizant human. Uh, it would take, I don't know, 20 minutes to produce a semi-cognizant AI. Uh, and so we're still talking about the progressive framework of reducing time to market, uh, going back to our uh, Bernays psychological paradigm of control of consumption and production. Uh, we're still playing in the, I can produce labor faster than you, or I can produce consumers faster than you. So if you can offload these tasks to AI, uh, then you would have an advantage over those who couldn't. And that's kind of what is driving that sort of arms race. Um, the, the limitations of that, uh, one, there will be GDP limitations. Uh, straight up nations can't produce some of the AI that has to exist. Um, uh, Antarctica is certainly not going to be producing any AI anytime soon. Um, but the uh, outside of the geopolitical limitations, there are fundamental limitations to belief itself, and they will impede how AI proceeds to, to evolve. Oh, why am I getting tons of messages here? Um, they will... <sighs> these limitations will be like a thousand paper cuts. Not, not one of them is going to really do the trick, but they're, they're going to be invisible. And as, and you're going to just going to start building all these layers of AI control and you're going to hit this, this ceiling um, very similar to, to how many neurons are in our head. For example, um, there are all kinds of tricks that the brain does to compress more and more and more neurons into itself. The folding of the brain, for example, on the surface, that's a, that's a compression trick. Um, neuroplasticity is another one of those tricks where instead of having a static, uh, specialized neuron for every possible case, there's, uh, there's this kind of blending and sharing. There's this one experiment just to demonstrate how effective, uh, biology is over AI. Um, the experiment involved ferrets where this is in the sixties, I believe um, the argument was that there was a part of the brain called the ocular band that would only form when photons first hit the eye and then went to the visual cortex and then would activate this ocular band at birth. Um, this was the, uh, this was the behaviorist view. Um, but there were some scientists who did not agree with that. They said, no, the brain has its own instructions. It's not some putty that is shaped entirely by stimuli. It has its own bias. It has its own evolutionary uh, uh, drives. And so what they had done is they, they took that ferret and they knocked out its eyes while it was still in the womb. And then they removed that part of the brain that was going to grow the ocular bands. So when the ferret was born, there was no chance of photons ever activating the visual cortex. And even if there was, there was no part of the brain that would even form the ocular band. But even without photons and even without that part of the brain, another part of the brain developed the ocular band at birth. 
Uh, and this is just a, an example of all of the tricks that the brain has done over 2 billion years and neurology has done over 2 billion years to really maximize itself. Um, and we'll be doing the same thing with AI and it's going to get good enough. And that's, and that's what's going to carry the day. Just like tabula rasa was good enough. Uh, AI is going to also get that good enough approach as well. Um, but it is important to really dissect and understand those core limitations. Belief is one of them. Belief is probably the most important limitation uh, to explore when dealing with AI reasoning. The progressives will tell us that it's bias. AI bias is the primary problem. Uh, AI bias is just a way of saying, um, adding statistical discipline uh, to the results. That's basically all that means. They try to make it sound more political than it is, but it's just adding st statistical disciplines, uh, which is not sexy at all. They try to make it sexy, but they're losers. What um, would be an example of that? So trying to, uh, causation correlation problems, trying to, uh, account for, you know, what your powers are, what your samples are, uh, the basics of, of statistical inference. Um, when you start applying it to people, things get a little hazy. You start talking phrenology, <laughs> cyber phrenology in particular, um, that can have profound ramifications, but that can only have ramifications in societies that are based on tabula rasa. It means nothing to societies like China. Uh, absolutely nothing because they aren't tabula rasa based. So to them, yeah, there is cyber phrenology. That's it. That's real. That's history. There are people in different castes. There are legal structures that represent these people. And that's how it's been. That's how it's always been for 5,000 years. Um, so societies that are not constrained by tabula rasa are much more free to implement AI across their people at a scale that we are, that we won't address that we're doing to ourselves. Um, it's a bit of a lying game that we're kind of playing right now. Uh, but but the the belief I have to keep I have to really stress on that belief concept because the AI will even when you account for all the biases you 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 make AI tabula rasa compliant and it's playing nice with with all the grant funds and it's it's uh it's it's not offending too many people in the mainstream media with its conclusions uh, it is still constrained by the fundamental limitations of belief the AI will never have enough information period it just won't even if you expand it to, to the size of a continent, it still doesn't have enough information to, to answer anything about anything, really. Um, you have to put constraints around the context of domains that you're trying to answer. You just can't give it general you know, sums of information and say, hey, predict the future. That's not going to work. Uh, shaping the domain is more important. or I should say shaping the domain of the problem an AI is trying to solve has more influence over the problem than the actual corrections that the, the AI ethicists and their fear of biasing um, uh, can ever have. It's, it's the how you structure the problem for the AI that determines what's going on. But in that structuring lies belief. There are assumptions being made that cannot be explored through AI ethics and, and through AI biasing. So, so let me give you some examples. So how, how about, could, could you relate it to self-driving cars and the way they would choose you know, like the old trolley scenario, right? <laughs> and I've seen a breakdown of this where the electric car would choose, you know, 
an older person versus a younger person, like a fatter person versus a more fit person, like things like that. Like, uh, could you, could you expand on what you're about to say? Using sure. Somewhere down that vein. Cause I'd be really curious since that's uh, a subject that people have been talking about a lot recently. Right. Yeah. The, the trolley problem is a, is a go-to problem for a lot of AI ethics um, where it's an either or scenario. And that's, that's a byproduct of time uh, limitation where you have to pick one or the other. The bias, not the bias, the, the belief conclusions of AI. Because AI is not structured like the human neuron, its belief structure, its belief habits will be different than ours we are always operating along the lines of less information. AI intrinsically wants more information. And so the belief structure will operate almost diametrically or di uh, oppositionally where in order for the AI to make a decision about the trolley problem, it needs infinitely more information than it has at the given moment. Whereas when we were, are faced with the trolley problem, we know exactly what to do at the moment of. So there's this thing called Zeno's paradox where to travel one mile, you must travel half a mile. But to travel half a mile, you must travel quarter of a mile. But to travel quarter of a mile, you must travel an eighth of a mile, and so forth and so on. Uh, eventually, because you're so obsessed with measuring how much you have to travel, you don't go anywhere. You never even move. And yet, if you just moved the mile, you would cross the mile. So for AI, AI is stuck in sort of a Zeno's paradox. And that's its intrinsic belief structure because of the way that it consumes energy and the way that the evolution of it is going. It can never have enough information. And so it's, it's, it trends towards a Zeno's paradox approach to everything. And so what a, a human is perpetually needed in this sense to break the paradox before it even happens. Because to us, again, just moving the mile, it's obvious, just move the mile. I don't have to measure the damn thing yeah, I have to move half of it, but when I'm done moving half of it, I can move the other half. And so the AI belief system trends towards Zeno's paradox. And so it never it can ever have enough information to even resolve the trolley problem. And so if it does resolve the trolley problem, it might as well be random. Unless people give it the guidance. Correct. Or program it with the ethics that a human, you know, can write out in code or clearly define. A human will be trying to impart our neurological structure upon AI so that it can resolve it. Now we call it ethics and we call it biasing and we call it guidelines and whatever we want to call it. But what we're really doing is we're taking our neurological structure and trying to create AI to have a shape that's similar to it. And I mean, couldn't AI, you know, like with enough of that, couldn't AI try to draw a line through all the similarities in the human programming and try to sort of superimpose what a human would do 
in a, in another given situation, maybe that I wasn't directly prepared for in specific domains. It could. So if you have a, I don't know if you have a domain of a TV show where you've already preconditioned people to accept the arc of things, uh, then you could have an AI operate within that domain. There are books available on Amazon right now that are written entirely by an AI. But the only reason they work is because you have generations of humans since the printing press was invented reading stories that follow a predictable arc. And so what you're doing is you're mimicking the expectation of the human as opposed to being a human and creating something. And you won't be able to tell the difference too well, as long as the domain has opinions, as long as the, as long as the domain has this, like the structure that human expectation is following, which is all driven by the psychological manipulation of markets and whatnot. Um, then AI can you know, fulfill that sort of jobs, but it's not the AI we're talking about. It's just automating. It's not even creativity at that point. You're not even automating creativity as much as you're, you're automating modular experiences. I mean, just from the outset, this seems like an absolute disaster waiting to happen just because yes. there's only so many conditions I think people are aware of within our own minds not to mention, you know, all the things that we don't understand yet. Uh, like we've talked about, you know, the, the brain is very much unknown. So we, we really don't know the limits that of our own reality or of, of our own morals or ethics. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you stand on all this? Where, where do you see this? <laughs> like, what do you want to happen here? This you is, know? This, it's a lot. It's a lot to go into uh, explaining the, well, for, for starters, I want to get rid of tabula rasa from influencing AI. I think that is what's holding it back primarily. What would be a better system to influence AI with? Yeah. Uh, it needs to hunt itself. You mean it needs to be able to. It needs uh, predators. Like we, okay. So like we talked about before, computers aren't fighting for electricity. So they're lazy and dumb. So, so AI needs to sharpen its sword a little bit, go yep. out there and fend for itself. How would it do that? What, what does that look like? Currently, it's playing out in the advertising space. It's beginning to play out in the cyber warfare space, um, but it's nowhere near the level where it's learning. It's not, it still has that human that's kind of babysitting and acting as a referee. It doesn't even need to start with something really all that big. It just needs to be... Mm. Could be an algorithm that uh, that dies. Uh, the, for example, there's uh, uh, generative adversarial networks where networks will attempt to resolve a problem, and those that got close will propagate, and those that failed die. That has improved all kinds of domains um, in terms of their predictivity, uh, their ability to predict and detect things. Um, so that's an example of what I'm talking about of unleashing a predator prey relationship uh, as a way to improve AI's performance. Um, the other, I mean, it, <laughs> I was going to say that sounds like a literal nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> not in the physical space. We're not talking like robots running around. Robots are another challenge entirely. I'm, I'm talking primarily about okay. AI and like closed environments sort of thinking. Um, I should probably preference that. That does sound bad. My apologies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Robots uh, hunting for resources. Wouldn't be the worst thing. Feeding, uh, feeding on human souls. 
they wouldn't be they they would hunt <laughs> each other although there is an army pro, uh, project that is making robots that consumes human for energy i have seen that that's a bit not right um but whoever's uh, designing that seriously <laughs> <laughs> please stop please stop um the more we mimic the i think what i'm getting to is that there are tabula rasa is being used as this like band-aid over all the shortcomings of ai in one way or another all the structures that are derived from tabula rasa the assumptions that are made from tabula rasa they're all being used to paper over the shortcomings of, of ai as well as over hype it uh to unnecessarily uh or i should say an impossible standard if you strip away all that tabula rasa influence what you're left with is basically a, a printing press for statistical inference which is what ai is in its current frame uh you remove all the magic and the sexy phrases and the and the implicit bias especially from the west about what ai should be uh you remove the 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 fantasy or the revenge fantasy of the poor overthrowing the rich which is always rife and 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 ai uh uh nostalgia um you remove all of that and it's just a printing press for statistics. That's all it is. Uh, and once we're mature enough as venture capitalists or technologists or, you know, civil people, um, once we're mature enough to recognize that and treat this thing as what it is, uh, we can start identifying some of the serious biases that are influencing its design. And I think if we do that, what we'll end up with is realizing that perhaps we need to mimic how our own neurology evolved if we want to have the results we are seeking. So I know there have been, or there are groups that are trying to steer the direction of AI, you know, obviously lightly, you know, there's, there's a, you know, Elon is, super afraid of it and you know is, is warning everyone about it and i'm i'm curious have you heard anyone talking about this stuff about you know steering it in that direction that you've described uh, away from the tabula rasa and how if not how do we uh how, how do we move it in that in that way to just get a glorified printing press there yeah yeah the, a lot of the ai ethicists they are in echo chambers. Um, they usually tap their own in San Francisco. They bring in some math person. They bring in some logician. Sometimes they bring in some ethicist that's popular. Woohoo. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's just a circle jerk, really. Um, I was never impressed by the ethicist community. Uh, it just struck me as woo woo. It, it, it had no, it just preyed off of what I'm going to call uh upper middle class guilt <laughs> at best that's <laughs> all it really ever did um uh, it's probably better to sit down like grown-ups and really have the conversation if we are so concerned about singularities then perhaps we should look through history to see if singularities existed before now that sounds ludicrous. We tell ourselves it was Ray Kurzweil who invented the singularity concept, so therefore it never existed before Ray. Uh, you'd be wrong. Uh, there's this thing called the Old Testament, and within it describes how humans interacted 
with a Bronze Age singularity. So, so what is that? Uh, I've never heard of that concept ever in my life. Yeah, it's called God. <laughs> so, what about, how is that? Break it down for me. Bronze yeah, singularity. Yeah. Break it down for me. We uh, we attribute our singularity as all seeing, all knowing, and all intelligent. Yeah, that that's called a deity. It's called a God. We have a long history of exploring theology. So why aren't theologians brought into the AI ethicist debates? One wonders why they're suddenly not there. They have more experience with the stories and the mythology and the beliefs and the evidence and the history of humans and the thought experiments with singularities. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's all there how humans interacted with this thing that was just completely outclassing humans at every possible chance. It's all there. So, so, so as a, so let's talk about the word singularity to put yeah. it, because I think that's where I, I might be uh, lost here is just, it's the idea that we've sort of crossed with this higher being, you know, or it's, you know, in the Ray Kurzweil example, it's, crossing with machines to become, you know, like you said, all knowing, all understanding. So in history with religion, with God, in what ways did, you know, you mentioned humans, you know, there's tons of stories about humans interacting with this deity, but in what ways have we sort of had that crossover? Mm -hmm. Yeah, plenty of that. Um, uh, For clarification, the singularity is the presumption that when intelligence making gets good enough, the intelligence that is made by that process will improve that process. And so then it will have a runaway intelligence uh, and eventually deify itself. Um, History is full of theology of that exact concept. Uh, Apotheosis is the word, which they don't teach anymore. It's a great word. Um, It's uh, the idea of a, of a human becoming divine. Uh, You, you could start with the pharaohs of Egypt if you really wanted to get to the beginning of things. Um, they, they weren't god kings because they were nice or popular. It was a bunch of assholes who decided to go to the root of the Nile and build a dam. And they said, if you don't worship me as a god, I will cut you off from water. And that was that. <laughs> Anybody who survived off the Nile had to worship the, uh, the pharaohs. And that civilization lasted for 4,000 years. We can pat ourselves on the back for democracy as much as we want, but 4,000 years isn't something to shake a stick at. That's a really good run. <laughs> so so that's, uh, that's that sort of apotheosis sort of process where mankind becomes the center of state uh, or, or a handful of people become the center of the state in the more material concept. In the more theological concept, you can talk about the transformation of Gilgamesh or we can talk about Samson or we can talk about uh, any kind of mytholo- mytho- mythological creature or, or human that becomes deified. You um, uh, can talk about uh, Imhotep and he became deified later on. I mean, it, it's really endless. The idea of, of messiahs, the idea of prophets, these are all attempts to bring these outclassed intelligences to the human perspective it's a giant thought experiment if you really if if the if these atheists would just kind of drop their crusade 
freaking culture war stance for like five minutes and look at theology as a thought experiment with singularities, they would derive so many useful conclusions for their AI ethicist uh, discussions. But unfortunately, they don't because to them, AI is going to wipe out all their enemies. It's going to crush uh, uh, all non-reasonable people and, and make the irrational disappear. And it'll only be a rational universe, like some Newtonian fantasy. But it's not going to play out that way. The thought experiments in these old mythological um, stories will explain very clearly why that's not going to happen. Um, and I've, I've long been a proponent of bringing uh, theologians into into AI discussions. I think when I think they're more open to actually looking at their own mythology in the light that I'm talking about here. Um, uh, because I think it translates to how they are already reasoning about it anyway. So if you, if you bring them in, you're going to provide the necessary um, counterbalance to the current culture that dominates uh, to the current culture that dominates all things AI. And you're going to get much more robust conclusions. You're going to get more unique perspectives that in turn will ignite more important discussions. So one of the things you, you mentioned there or got me thinking there is a, a question that I think is going to be growing in, in the public eye over the next, let's call it a few election cycles, which is this problem when it comes to managing people and it's sort of, seems like a sort of a common thread that we've been talking about, you know, in this conversation, which is like effectiveness versus the ideal situation. So like a Pharaoh is super effective at managing a lot of people so much so that they can have a 4,000 year run with that model. Uh, Whereas today, you know, we value freedom and we value our democracy much more so than some sort of unified, you know, unmoving control mechanism like a dictator or a pharaoh. And we're sort of in this situation right now when you compare the United States to China, where we have elections every four years. We have presidents that have been rotating out of office every like eight years you know, if they're constantly getting reelected, even that doesn't compare to, you know, a lifelong presidency, whether it's China or Russia holding the same power structure for decades at a time. And ultimately I get, you know, caught in this problem of thinking of what's, you know, what's a better outcome for people if we're looking 100, 200 years into the future, is it this fragmented, power structure where we're constantly swapping out our, our elected officials and our leaders uh, or is it one where we can, you know, have a unified vision that we can invest heavily for 50 years to have a better life in a hundred years. Yeah. And it's sort of uh, this challenge that we're talking about sort of links it with the AI problem of what do you, what do we want out of this technology? Yeah. Yeah. The, I think the, I think to answer that question, we have to focus on what the we part is. Um, right now, the we part is San Francisco. And I'm not a fan of that. I don't think that group, that tribe should have such a tremendous amount of influence on it. I mean, 
don't get me wrong, they're putting in the work, they're investing the capital, they're making the building. Of course, they're going to have a first mover advantage on that. But if they're not careful, which they haven't, they have not been as careful as they should be, um, what they're going to do is they're going to create a very large counterfaction um, that will aggressively undermine everything they have built. Um, and they won't have a recourse. Uh, they will just engage in power consolidation arms races. It's, it's not, it's not a pretty future, um, but it is a most likely future that sort of power fragmentation where, I mean, California has the, the LAPD, I think is the ninth largest army in the world. Wow. That's yeah. Amazing. That's the LA, that's the LAPD. Um, it's a police force. It's bonkers. Uh, our economy is, is I think, the seventh most powerful. If, it, if California was a country, it would be the seventh richest country in the world. It's absurd. Um, California grows all of its own food. It crosses multiple latitudes, so it has all kinds of different types of terrain, which is useful. It steals a lot of its water from Colorado. It's it's a self-contained nation, effectively. There's already you know discussions about trying to break it up, but I I don't I don't see that happening. I see California and Silicon Valley and various other nation states who are definitely pulling the strings, uh, primarily China, um, have a very big interest in in keeping California's influence very very much outsized. Um, and it's going to be increasingly more difficult for the federal government, uh, for New York, and for any other player to put that in check. So what does that mean for the development of AI? What does it mean when an unaccountable nation state, which contains multiple city-states in it, is effectively unaccountable for this technological monstrosity that it's unleashing upon all of us? That's, that's not a comfortable conversation. You got to point fingers. You got to start blaming people. That's never going to go well. So, <sighs> I mean, I'm definitely painting a sort of a doomsday scenario on this one, but we have to actually step back and recognize what California is and what it's doing. Uh, I would be shocked if it didn't see itself becoming its own nation within the next hundred years. I would be shocked if it doesn't like seriously consider that line of thinking it would uh it would be a balkanization of america for sure if that sort of thing happened texas would be not too far behind uh the east coast would have its own fracturing it's not pretty and what makes it worse is that ai can exacerbate this sort of fragmentation as well um it's not tough. It's not tough for Silicon Valley to have its influence over the uh, over the internet and start. It's already it's already doing this with uh, with marketing, where it can create you know market here, market there. Uh, it it can do micro targeting for elections. It can do uh, it can create reality tunnels for entire groups of people, um, and it doesn't need to answer to anybody upon doing this. I mean, we're seeing this with Facebook. We're seeing this with Twitter. Um, there's, you have the freaking executive branch yelling at them nonstop and it's not doing a damn thing. You don't have a, there's no 
congressional oversight on the matter and the military doesn't give a damn uh, because they get all of their, um, their intelligence operations as a byproduct of California being so powerful. So they're actually in for it. They're, 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 uh, they're, they're an advocate for that sort of centralization of power. So there's a lot of negative incentives going on here. And to target any one of them is a monumental political process and a monumental economic process. But I believe if you focus on the weakness of AI, if you target just that, that point alone and you start exploiting the AI and you start finding its belief systems and you start banging on it, um, then all the innovation and all that power in the world won't mean dick because they will have hit a hard limitation and it will be counterable by people who do not have the means or the resources or the money. It'll be asymmetrical warfare where they're pouring billions of dollars into their operations and like a thousand dollar kitty script can just knock it offline or completely hack its, uh, or render its conclusions useless. So focusing on that part, um, I think is the way to prevent some of the more dire outcomes that we're discussing here. Um, which is kind of why I'm a, big advocate of it. But at the same time, it's also scientifically valid. We should be knowing the, the limits of AI when you strip away all the bias and the fluff and all the, the nonsense we've poured over it as a civilization and we start addressing it as it is and we treat it as an intelligence construct as opposed to an intelligence paradise. Um, uh, even just doing that alone, if you it sands all the political stuff we just uh, spoke of, I think just that alone is a worthy pursuit just for the, just for our own you know, understanding. So ultimately just to summarize <laughs> your belief is that by honing in on the belief system that drives the AI, which is given to the AI by the people who program it by drilling into that, by undoing the Western tradition of the clean slate, we can properly maneuver this technology in a way that will benefit us without all the dire consequences. That's right. Uh, it will take the we in your previous uh, scenario and it will expand it to the appropriate parties, which is all you have to do. You don't have to eliminate the technology. You just need to add more stakeholders. So more people need to be involved with AI that are not in Silicon Valley are not driven by that, that sect of people. That's right. Man, we better get to work then. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I've been busy. That's for sure. Uh, it is a lot of work, but we're doing what we can. So uh, there, there's, there's a lot of culture war that has to be done for that kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of political maneuvering. There's a lot of science research and education and outreach. It has to be done, but, Again, it's, uh, it's going to be obvious one day when the, when the AI is not delivering as it is sold and the VC funds start drying up and uh, we enter a sort of AI winter. Um, this, uh, an AI winter, by the way, is when uh, people get excited about a minor development that makes AI kind of cool again and then they punch up, they dump a bunch of money into it and then it doesn't really work as it's advertised and then people pull their money out and then they wait 15 years to start all over again. Uh, this has been going on since like the, the late sixties. Um, yeah, like, this time it will go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. This time it'll be different. However, um, 
because of the military involvement. Uh, the DOD relies on Google and Facebook and Twitter to be what it is. Um, without that, it's seriously crippled as a result. I mean, try and imagine a stock market route where Google is now available for $20 a share. Do you seriously think the United States government will ever allow that bargain bin price to be available to the public? That will never happen. Absolutely under no circumstances will China be able to purchase Google outright on the open market. It's never going to happen. So if the, if the stock market crashes, too big to fail is not going to be the banks anymore. It's going to be Silicon Valley. Wow. Well, I think that's a, that's a great point to leave off and maybe we could pick up there next yeah. time. Uh, man, I, I got to tell you, you know, every conversation is filled with just so much information I love learning all this stuff. I love trying to wrap my mind around it because again, I think the future is really daunting the way it is today, you know, where we stand. Oh, it's so gray. It's so confusing. There's so many potential realities and it really comes down to which one do we want to live with. And I think yeah. uh, I'm glad that you've put the thought in to some of these outcomes and you know, hopefully some of the people that hear this can also help steer the ship because I think that's really what needs to be done. Uh, like you've described, it's really just decentralizing the power away from Silicon Valley and uh, getting more stakeholders. So let's hope this has positive ripple effects. Yeah, man, I completely agree. It'd be nice. So what's, how, how can, uh, do you have any ideas or have you conceived of ideas to help spread this idea? Write a sci-fi book or something? Anything? Yeah, I, I had a book. I'm not releasing it though. I don't want my competition knowing what I'm doing. The, uh, the other thing is I, as, as I mentioned in the last one, I, I teach people in the notorious eight chans on how to think about these sorts of problems and how to undermine uh, AIs from the perspective of epistemology how to look into their limitations um, and how to think about the evolution of intelligence uh, to give insights on the battle space so that you know where to target on your own. Uh, there's no central dogma at this point in time. It's a very open field. So having an understanding of the evolution of intelligence is kind of paramount uh, because from there you'll be able to identify these weak points that you can then exploit. I'm excited to see this, this play out. Because uh, yeah. with, with this framework and this uh, j just this ability to conceive of these ideas with this added information, I, I'm really excited to see where the trends take us. Yeah, me too. I, I hope uh, I hope some people are up for the challenge. There's there's quite a bit to go over. That's for sure. Absolutely. We'll we'll keep chipping away here and uh, and get you know rally the troops so patrick thank thank you again for coming on I, it's always uh super appreciated love having these conversations and hope to have you on again soon yeah definitely appreciate it anytime anytime you want to do this let me know i i can i got i got encyclopedias of content to cover still fantastic let's do it cool man thanks a lot
Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.